Welcome to Wireless Future. Um, I'm Eric Larsson and I'm here with my colleague, as always, Emil Björnsson. Hello, Emil. Hello, I'm great. How are you? I'm pretty good, thank you. So it's been a while indeed. How does it feel to be back recording? Yeah, it's good. I'm in a new studio here with new lightning and everything and a new green screen. So I hope it will be good as usual in terms of sound quality and everything. Wow, that's amazing. I'm still in the old studio. <laughs> right, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, always enjoying. We usually use your background and then I'm just virtually there as a avatar. Yeah, putting this all together like um, um, so that it, it actually looks like we, we, we sit here, but we don't. I sit in Linköping and you sit in, in Stockholm. Emily. Right. And uh, I always enjoy this. I I've always find this uh, podcast recording with you is a great way to, well, read up on some new things and, and learn uh, new things. Yes. Um, so what do we have today to talk about? So I found a new white paper about 6G and uh, also looking back at 5G that SK Telecom have been producing. Oh, SK Telecom. So SK here stands for? South Korea. South Korea. Yes. So this white paper, I mean, there are plenty of them, I think, out there on 6G, right? But this particular one, so it's a 6G white paper that also talks about lessons learned from 5G and it talks about requirements for 6G and evolution and spectrum. Uh, so where, where, where did we get started? Maybe we can start with SK. So so what is the, the SK Telecom? Yes. So. SK Telecom is South Korea's, I think, largest telecom operator. And there is a reason why I picked this white paper, not one of all the other ones that exists. Because on the one hand, I think the operators are the ones who really know what they want to deploy in the future, while the vendors that are building technology might have other ideas about what could be cool to create. But then they've also been pushing a lot. They were very early with 3G. I think they had the first high-speed versions of 3G, for example. They were first with 5G, mm. with millimeter wave, and they have been very active also in the 5G era with putting out their visions. Hmm. So South Korea has been a, a leader as a country in the uh, development and rollout of this technology. And now we are like looking for, from at the insights from uh, a white paper by their main operator. Yes. Um, so you said they were early with uh, some 4G features and with 5G. Uh, does this mean massive MIMO? Does it mean millimeter wave? Or what aspects of 5G uh, are they mostly known for? Right. So uh, when people were uh, sort of making plans for, for 5G, there were a lot of talk about we need to deliver 1,000 times more traffic. And then SK Telecom mm -hmm. was one of those who was putting out a voice on how they thought we could achieve 1,000. And they were pushing a lot for small cells. So that's why they were also already in 2018 getting a millimeter wave frequency for 28 gigahertz. And they started deploying 5G millimeter wave, which only a few countries have done so far. Hmm. Why is that? Why is it that not more countries have uh, deployed millimeter wave? I mean, I would suppose millimeter wave is mostly useful when you have very high like population density in big cities. And of course, South Korea as a country is fairly densely populated. I think it's like comparable to Netherlands in, in Europe uh, or e even more dense. And, and it's a big country, obviously, it has like 50 something, I think, million almost. 
population. But um, could you, is there like a, uh, is, is that a correct understanding that the, the main driver for millimeter wave is when you, you really have a like, dense population and dense cities? Yeah, that, that is my impression as well, because the, the range is rather short for these waves. Yeah. Uh, not in line of sight, but as soon as you have buildings and everything around, then you get rather uh, yeah, uh, short range. You need to have a lot of people who can share the high capacity that, that you can deliver over a millimeter wave. Otherwise, it might not be worth it. Right, so it's mainly for like very densely crowded uh, places and, and, and cities. Um, but is there like a reason for why not more countries have rolled out millimeter wave? So since you need to deploy a lot of more base stations than you would need at lower frequencies because of the shorter range, uh, at least if you want to sort of cover large areas, then I think a lot of uh, operators were sort of waiting and looked what happens in mm-hmm. South Korea and mm-hmm. they were also oh. seeing that maybe we can start with deploying massive MIMO in, in lower frequencies and then deploy right. millimeter wave. Right, so, so basically you're saying that for millimeter wave to work you need very densely deployed base stations yes. and uh, South Korea were, were like pioneers in that deployment and others have waited to see a little bit how well that worked out. So, so how did this work out then with the millimeter wave deployments over there? Not so well, actually. So, oh, not so, well. so when they got the license, they were promising to deploy, let's see, 15,000 sites. And last year in May, they had only deployed slightly above 10%, so 1,650 sites. Oh, only 10% of what they promised. Yeah, it's always hard to relate like absolute numbers like this. I think the only way yeah. to really make sense of numbers of this sort is to divide by the population or the country to get some sort of base station per capita <laughs> metric. Uh, but 10% sounds like uh, is, is very little, in fact. Yeah. Why did this happen or rather not happen? Do you have like a good, uh, or does the white paper talk about that? No, they actually don't talk about this in the white paper. I picked this up from, from the news <laughs> instead. And what happened then was that I suppose they had a business plan for rolling out. I mean, you wouldn't buy expensive spectrum unless you were planning to deploy in this way. But then they probably figured out that, uh, well, we don't get the covers that we need. Uh, users don't have good enough hardware components and the base stations are not good enough. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, they are talking about uh, the immaturity of hardware and services that needs this kind of technology. So mm-hmm. what actually happened in May this year was that they had to give back the license because they hadn't delivered at all on what they promised. And the same thing happened for the two other uh, telecom operators in South Korea that also had millimeter wave. So they actually don't have any millimeter wave network anymore. Oh, they don't have any network anymore. Wow. So that must be like a nightmare scenario for an operator to have to give back a a spectrum license because of, um, well, failure in some sense with or some way with the deployment. Mm. Um, so, so what about in other countries will millimeter wave? I'm not sure. I mean, does the white, white paper talk about or do you know, Emil, uh, what, what about in other parts of the world? You mentioned that there were like only a few countries yeah. who 
actually deployed successfully. So there's still a millimeter wave in Japan, which I guess have a little bit similar uh, density of people. And then in the US, I know Verizon have been pushing a lot to millimeter wave, but those are the only market that I, I know about. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. So yeah, Japan and, and US. Of course, US isn't densely populated as a country, really, but there are some <laughs> urban metropolitan areas that are fairly dense right. still, uh, but not in Europe. So no millimeter wave in Europe. No. And and I think in Sweden, we don't even have had an auction some millimeter wave spectrum no. because there is no demand yet. Right, right. Oh, interesting. Wow. Okay, so maybe we should return to the main theme of the white paper. And it starts with a discussion of some lessons that were learned from the 5G deployment. Hmm? So what were these lessons? Right. So they, they're describing three main lessons, which are also a little bit interconnected. The first one is that there were a variety of visionary use cases or services that uh, it was described a lot uh, that the fight will be a, about this. But there were no real killer service, as we say, not something that is dangerous, but something that would really <laughs> make people uh, buying this equipment. Uh, yeah. So we're talking about 3D video, ultra high definition video streaming, uh, AR, VR, kind of uh, augmented reality things, autonomous driving, remote surgery. And yeah, none of those things have happened yet, right? Mm-hmm. Why not? Why, why do you think, or does the white paper give a reason for uh, like... We're still not mature as a society to adopt all these new um, augmented reality and uh, remote services or... So I think there is a mix of things. So they are mentioning things like uh, the form factor that if you want to build something like this isn't good enough yet. Mm. The maturity of the service or even the demand for it is rather low so far. And there might be regulations that are preventing some of these things. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the question is, of course, whether this will ever come, right? With like augmented reality, are we all in the future some some point going to like walk around with a big helmet <laughs> watching some projected uh, uh, computer-generated uh, image or overlay or not? It's difficult to predict cultural shifts, uh, obviously. Right. Um, but I can see that point and also that even these gadgets seem extremely impressive, but they're still quite bulky and uh, we, we just aren't there yet. Yeah, and I think th- there is a point there with that uh, when you promise that a technology like 5G, which is something that will live for 10 years or so, will deliver certain new f- nice services, there isn't much reason for it those services to be available from day one because it's not like someone will develop devices that can only be used with a network that haven't been rolled out yet but I think for some of those things, things are happening now. So you mentioned augmented reality. There is the Apple Vision Pro that they have been showing off. And I guess next year people can buy them. Yeah. I think they are meant for sitting still in your office and experience, I mean, having a very large screen in front of you, right. in front of your eyes. So it might not be meant for mobility, which is also what cellular connectivity is meant for. Right. And once, these de- once, I mean, folks want to use these devices uh, outside of the office and really move around, then we will need wireless connectivity that can support not only these rates, but also support that mobility, obviously. Hmm. Yeah. Mm. 
So the, the second thing they were mentioning was the, the gap between sort of the 5G visions that they were describing and what people were uh, expecting because, uh, yeah, to some extent this is of course connected with the services, but if you say, oh, we will be able to deliver 20 gigabit per second or it will have this and that latency and then people don't get that from day one, they will of course be disappointed because, mm. yeah, we think that this 10-year generational shift will emit immediately bring us great differences. Mm. So do you think the technology was like oversold that when, when the 5G concepts came about that vendors and operators just promised too much and that never uh, like materialized that promised? So I think there is a educational issue with these type of things because you might develop the technology with a certain vision in mind that once we have 5G we will be able to support this and that services eventually but mm -hmm. when you're talking a lot in media about how the technology will be the uh, yeah, enabler of autonomous vehicles or this and that remote surgery then mm. uh, people expect that to happen rather swiftly but but it's not and we're not even there yet it's so. not yeah yeah this is a good point yeah so any other lessons that were learned from uh, from 5g right so the, the third thing they mentioned is something that is related to millimeter wave they don't say it explicitly but they phrase it like need to consider various frequency bands and technology maturity uh, and i think that <laughs> technology really means, maturity yeah. <laughs> and i think that is the issue with that both the base station hardware for millimeter wave was probably not i mean it's a uh, very advanced new technology that haven't been deployed very much probably that one wasn't so efficient mm. the um, coverage wasn't good enough and then the user devices I i've heard at least that it's quickly getting so hot that uh, you mm. can't use 5g for extended periods of times with at least the first devices even the devices get hot which yeah. of course also means uh, a lot of heat dissipates and that, that heat has to be generated from uh, energy ultimately drawn from the battery right yeah, so yeah, yeah. there's probably a battery <laughs> issue as well connected to uh, uh, interesting and then obviously as i think we talked many times before ml the millimeter wave has somehow the physics is against it um, because of the uh, um, uh, coherence time at, at high bands, um, which makes more difficult to support mobility, and because of blocking and and also the, sh the shrinking of the antenna effective area when you go up in frequency. So did all this 5G all happen uh, too fast? I think there is certainly that kind of issue because uh, there were first a time plan and then after a while they were speeding up that time plan as well because uh, yeah for example I think in the US they wanted to deploy fixed mobile broadband using 5G technology and wanted to sort of roll out things quickly at different markets so then they created this non-standalone version of 5G where mm. the idea was that okay we feel that we know a bit about about how to have the radio interface, uh, so how to build the base stations, but everything that is behind that, uh, sort of uh, the, the core network, or mm. should you connect your device to the 4G or the 5G cell first and, and connecting those things together, uh, they enable you to deploy non-standalone 5G networks. Uh, and there are seven different ways of building that. So, so non-standalone here means like, do you just replace the or like the um, antenna units and keep 
like switches and backbone network and all of that. Uh, yes, that's w- one version of it, and it could be that you keep whatever you have and you add an additional base station. Your device connects to the 4G oh. network, and then the 4G network knows that there is a 5G network, and whatever you have data, you connect to the 5G bands as well. So there's a lot of different mixes of this. Mm, mm. I can see. So then I guess one question is like now, with these issues that we had with a 5G rollout, how could those issues be avoided or fixed in 6G? Right. And here, SK Telecom is putting a lot of emphasis on virtualization and open interfaces. I think so virtually, virtualization here, I think I feel like we have to break this down. So virtualization means... Right. So... Uh, conventionally every piece of hardware is sort of the hardware is built for doing certain things uh, uh, such as the baseband processing for example and it's really fine-tuned the hardware to do just one thing and if you want to update things you have to replace the whole box uh, and virtualization is the the idea that you are using more general purpose computers uh, and your software define a lot of the uh, different processing so that you can update it more easily mm, mm. that's somehow that sounds to me like that goes against uh, the trend of building like more specific hardware which is optimized for specific functionalities and could also be made a lot more energy efficient. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit, it sounds at the surface like running everything on a general purpose computer, you certainly could do that and everything is implemented in software, but you know, you lose the opportunity to actually optimize the hardware um, and this is now in a world where energy efficiency <laughs> is becoming more and more of an issue. Mm. Um, is there such a trade-off? Yes, there is such a trade-off. It it might not necessarily be that uh, easy that it only goes in that direction. I think the, uh, this is connected to what is called open run as well, that uh, traditionally if you are buying these different boxes that you need for uh, the baseband processing and, and base stations and so on from one vendor, then what interfaces you have between the boxes, that wasn't standardized. So uh, the operator sort of can optimize it certainly in their best way and what they thought was Mm. the best way of doing it but you also sort of get locked in and then the idea with open run is that the interface between all the different boxes that you need in your network would be standardized Uh, you know what Mm. kind of messages you can send in between them but then you should be able to buy the different boxes from different vendors hopefully they can be optimized more swiftly there will be more of a market pressure to do things better uh, but but I think the risk is that a lot of things also becomes less efficient. Right. And possibly less... I mean, somehow my understanding earlier had been that vendor or uh, operators and customers like to build everything from one and the same supplier or vendor. Because then if something goes wrong, they know how to call to, to have it fixed. Um, but if you buy like one component from this vendor, another component from that vendor, and then these components don't properly talk to each other, it isn't so obvious whom to call or even whose fault it is. Um, so um, is it true that this open run, so open run and, and open interfaces are basically the same thing, uh, are they? Because you mentioned at the beginning, I think open uh, interfaces. 
So is it is there some controversy? I mean, is this a controversial thing at all with open run? I'm asking because as invited wants to give a speech at a a conference, but it wasn't a condition that I don't talk about open run, <laughs> and uh, I never I, I, I reflected over it and and thought that there's there's something here that's controversial, possibly something even that I don't understand well, um, but. Do you know this, Emil? Is this a big point of controversy? So there are certainly some uh, sort of competition aspects to this as well. Uh, so we have only a few big vendors that can deliver an entire network today. So if you only have to choose one vendor to buy everything from, you have to pick one of those. And then I think operators would very much like to have more competition. And since it's hard for one company to be able to de- uh, yeah, deliver all the different boxes that you need to build a network, uh, Open Run is enabling more competition so you can uh, buy from different places. Uh, right, because new vendors could pop up and just make um, sell um, specific or particular components then assuming they follow the spec then would or would just right out, out of the box fit in and work together with the rest of the equipment so that they should they should facilitate uh, reduction of costs and, and imp- improved competition yeah then i can imagine that the many of the operators actually don't want to buy their equipment from unproved small companies and mix and match whatever, but they want to have this as a leverage against the big vendors. Because if you build an entire 5G network or 6G network for that matter from one vendor and then something breaks and you need to buy a few more boxes, they say, ah, actually we have increased the price on these boxes by 50% since last time, (laughs) you know, is supply chain issues. So then you want to have this possibility okay i can actually buy from someone else right to buy from different vendors yeah so that, that should be a, obviously an advantage um as, as an operator um right but hmm. and then virtualization on its own have benefits in the sense that instead of having one baseband processor per base station you can put this once on a server which is uh, located a few kilometers from the base station and it can be shared between many different base stations because usually not every base station has full load at the same time. So if they can pull mm. their needs at one place, you can also sort of reduce the amount of computational uh, power that you need. Mm. So you mean even shipping the actual baseband data off the site for processing elsewhere? Uh, mm, interesting. Okay, so, so, so basically you're saying that... Uh, uh, the the uh, approach to avoid these issues that were there with the 5G rollout would be in the view of, of the SK white paper um, virtualization on one hand and uh, open interfaces, open RAN on the other hand yes, uh, which seems possible but not totally I think obvious um, considering all aspects uh, of, of, of the issue and, uh, and I think what they're after is some kind of uh, uh, forward compatibility so that uh, if you are finding better ways of doing things in the future uh, you are not uh, hit by the fact that you were early with deploying something because you can always update the software without having to tear down your entire network and, and deploy something that is more efficient Mm-hmm. So forward compatibility, mm. really meaning that um, you could 
install essentially new firmware once new features become available or new needs but but keep like the the, the hardware platform because also this non-standalone thing it was only able to deliver enhanced mobile broadband and not all of these other services that was promised and that people were expecting so i think operators gave themselves the possibility to deploy 5g early but also to make it more expensive to actually achieve that 5g experience that people were expecting uh, because you have to then uh, yeah buy new hardware later on Mm -hmm. Hmm. All right. Um, so where do we go from here, Emil? Should we shift uh, gears a little bit and talk about something else? How about AI? Because the white paper, I think, also mentions AI as an enabler. And of course, everybody's talking about AI, and it can mean a lot of different things depending on the <laughs> on the context. But now in the context of, of the 6G white paper, how is AI seen to be an enabler for um, new functionality that, that 6G will offer. Right. So many people uh, are talking about, oh, AI, uh, we, we want the 6G networks to be AI native. And I've AI always, native. Yeah. And I've tried to understand sometimes what does that really mean? Yeah, uh, I have to I have to admit, I don't think I understand what it really means. Uh, is there like a consensus on or the definition of the term yes so i think it goes like this so of course today there are a lot of data analytics being done in the base stations in order to figure out how you should optimize different interfaces particularly perhaps resource allocation things use some ability when now there's a lot of users in the cell when can you turn things off and such things but you need to sort of be clever with implementation and the idea with 6g native is that you would already standardize from the beginning how you can collect data and share them between your different boxes in the networks and use that for improving different features so you will standardize that kind of data collection and analytics mm. Mm. so that would be like some general ai algorithm that is in all data from mobility and beams and cells and uh, so forth then makes it, that like trains on a lot of historical data and makes decision is that is that the vision or um, I mean, how much of classical algorithms would actually be replaced by AI here? I would imagine that you you don't want to change things that really works, but uh, there are a lot of different aspects, particularly when it comes to user behavior that is hard to predict in advance and that you want to tune differently in different cells and, and therefore, right. uh, yeah, Ba- if you start from man-made algorithms and you fine-tune with machine learning, I think that is what you're after. Mm. Yeah, user behavior modeling sounds like a golden use case for AI and, and learning algorithms in, in my ears. Then obviously there will be lots of other functionality where it's difficult to see that AI has a lot to offer. But there's certainly problems for which we just don't have any reasonable physical models or even good classical algorithms and their AI could make 
uh, rather big difference. So, so they are mentioning six specific things that they think are interested. Uh, and of course, some of those things are already discussed now in 5G. One of them is that when there is not much traffic in the cell, you would like to turn off certain pieces of hardware to save energy and then turn them on again as soon as there is but usage. That, that I mean, doesn't sound very 6G-ish. I mean, turning off something when it isn't used is like teaching the kids to turn off the lamp or the light when they leave the room, right? They should have been there from, like, if not the first generation, at least the, the like second or third of cellular technology is what it sounds like to me. Right. And I think the thing is that you don't want the user to sort of say, oh, now I will be turning off for a while. But it's more like, when does the kids leave for school? Can we learn that? And then we can turn it off immediately. And then we can turn it on again when we expect them to come home. And maybe they are following a schedule. So there is some kind of predictability there. Yeah, and also I suppose turning off is one thing. It's actually, I mean, turning off is quite easy, right? Just uh, shut the power, but turning on might be more difficult than actually turning on quickly enough that uh, users don't experience unduly delays or or other trouble. Nothing you mentioned was like uh, mobility in the cells, I think. But mm-hmm. I thought six G would be a lot about cell free. Um, access and cell-free MIMO that I think both of us have have in the past done some academic work on the topic. Um, Is there like any consensus or does the white paper have any opinion about cellular or cell-based communications versus this notion of cell-free? So they don't talk specifically about the cell-free aspects or even collaboration between the base stations. Uh, what they are mentioning related to this is uh, mobility management on just resource allocation between different frequency bands. Because I think when we are considering cell-free in our research, because consider one frequency band and how you handle mobility and things there. But if you now have four or five different frequency bands you want to put users in the best location and uh, and handle the load between those bands and mm. i think that is a difficult problem that ai might be able right. to deal with it absolutely is and it, it, that's another thing or problem where it sounds like ai could be a, a very useful and effective enabler um so shifting traffic around multiple bands, and I suppose these bands could be quite far apart or not. I mean, are we now discussing like devices that could connect to maybe sub-10 networks and, and to millimeter wave and others yeah. simultaneously? And then that becomes like an interesting question how to optimize the the uh, uh, assignment of... Uh, of, of bands. So I think I interrupted you too much. You mentioned there were like six uh, <laughs> directions where AI would be native in these networks. And I think we, we have mentioned three of them now with energy savings, with switching off things, load balancing, mobility management. They are also mentioning cell shaping by beamforming. This is sort of... So that's another thing that kind of mm-hmm. s- sounds slightly dissonant in my ears now, given like the trend in 6G research towards cell free that shaping cells i mean if there are, aren't any cells then why would we shape them right? what, what, what is there left to shape um but fair enough let's see so what and yes. then they mentioned link adaptation which uh, sounds like something that would be easy to deal with but uh, apparently it's not as easy in reality because you you're transmitting relatively short blocks of, of data maybe the, the codes are spanning some uh 
five to ten thousand uh, symbols or something like that and then uh, the interference that you are experiencing there might be hard to predict and that will have a lot of uh, impact on your link adaptation uh, and then finally there are these type of things uh, compression of channel state information if you pass it around beam management and positioning accuracy uh, things that are I guess particularly relevant if you are using analog uh, implementation in the millimeter wave mm, right so in summary I mean a lot of uh, implementation matters where we currently don't have good enough algorithms and where AI and machine learning could come to rescue um, relying on the collection of large amounts of training data I suppose and, and really adapting I mean w once you code start a system it might take a while for for the network to, to really burn in and, 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 and learn uh, how to operate efficiently but over time it, it, it will hmm yeah, and you want to be able to uh, enable these AI algorithms by having this means of collecting, passing around data, analyze them, make decisions, and then store the data. Mm. Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, great. So I think the next thing that I wanted to talk with you about is from the white paper's perspective. We touched upon this already, but maybe there's more to say on, on use cases and then we have use cases both for like consumers and for 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 industry and 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 possibly other like entities or stakeholders we started with consumer use cases for 6g uh, what are they that we can't support with let's say 5g that's available today yeah, and I think here we, we are coming back to this issue that we talked about earlier, that there is this natural delay between when the connectivity gets deployed and when you can reasonably release a new customer product that will require that kind of connectivity. So, so it really becomes a natural delay there, so there won't be any devices when 60 are released that can only be used on 60. That is my, my guess. Uh, but what the general thing that they are looking for at SK Telecom is they say lifestyle innovating services breaking the constraints of time and space. <laughs> lifestyle innovating services breaking the constraints of you said time and space. Time and, spa time and space. Wow. <laughs> Well, so, so I guess one of those things are then extended or augmented reality kind of things, uh, like the the Apple Vision Pro. Yeah, uh, I mean, it sounds like a grand statement, right? But uh, it probably comes down to um, augmented and extended and mixed reality. Yeah. yeah, in the end. And I think if it gets popular enough, so that you want to do this with mobility, well, then you will certainly need a, a cellular network. I think if you're sitting in your room, uh, I believe that the Apple Pro will, uh, Vision Pro will be using Wi-Fi to start with as well. And maybe that's enough if you're sitting at one location. Right, right, at one location. But once you get moving, like dancing out on the street, then that will um, introduce a whole lot of new challenges for the, for the connectivity. Yeah, and I think if people will be walking around and mix the reality that they are seeing with uh, augmented things you don't want to go around the corner and all of a sudden everything disappears so you want this really uh, consistency in performance everywhere 
Mm-hmm. So how about other use cases like for, for industry, for example, and for autonomous mm-hmm. vehicles and driving? Are there any new visions there as compared to what had already or has already or was discussed for uh, for 5G? So they are mapping this lifestyle innovation also with uh, uh, autonomous driving. So there is the level four type of autonomous driving where you can leave everything to the car and, and you can just sit back in the car and do other things. And that will sort of give you more time and space to do other things, essentially. Uh, but of course, all of these use cases that I'm mentioning are things that were already mentioned in the 5G era, because if you just uh, put together a number of communication engineers to predict the future, they will come up with all of these type of things that are, are uh, obvious, and then it just might take time before we can deliver it. Yeah, I mean, honestly, there is nothing really here that I had not heard already in 5G um, or, or vision, let's say, discussions um, much longer ago. Um, but it's one thing to talk about a vision, a different thing to actually formulate even a requirement spec for a technology, obviously. Um, so anything else that wasn't there for 5G that's worth highlighting or that the white paper talks mm. about? So uh, I think... It- in the industry case there, nothing really have taken off when it comes to 5G jet. And maybe we will have to wait for 6G before things really happening. So if we had these three use cases, one was enhanced mobile broadband, and then there were the massive machine type communication, so a lot of small sensors, and the ultra-reliable low latency uh, things. Both of them targeting a lot of industry kind of applications. The issue there is that on the one hand, we see that our society is getting digitalized a lot. So it's natural that we will need this kind of services uh, in the future uh, but it also takes a lot of time because this is huge investments so just mm. look at in a factory where you would be building a new car or something like that it's billions or, or more that you need to invest in that and then connectivity is a small part of it and if you're used to not using wireless connectivity uh, you really need to make a big effort to push that into it um, mm. and of course, the added value has to be there, right? And I mean, wireless is great, obviously, but it also fights a different physics than a wired connection does with interfere, susceptibility to interference and blocking other links and all sorts of things. Yeah. Um, and I talked with uh, ABB, the Swedish uh, company, or semi-Swedish at least, that are uh, building a lot of robots for factories, for example. And they are really looking for what they call functional safety, that uh, it must work all the time. It's cost a lot of money for every minute that uh, the factory can't operate. And they don't see that 5G can deliver that yet. So so they are very keen on, on actually improving technology technology in order to uh, have the connectivity that is needed to uh, to transfer everything into wireless there. Yeah. But uh, I guess in general, a lot of the talk so far is uh, sort of low energy, bigger MIMO, refining protocols, uh, more robust and resilient core. And yeah, it's the same kind of mm. things. Mm-hmm. Um, same kind of things as we had like for 5G, you're saying? Or like, I mean, yes, this, exactly. this is much of this sounds like music to my ears with um, bigger MIMO and uh, lower energy <laughs> and so forth. But um, 
there's got to be some things, I guess, that are more novel than others, at least. So, so one um, more thing that is happening is uh, uh, sort of 3G, 3D networks, so aerial networks. So, so, so both uh, in terms of uh, connecting flying objects like airplanes or drones uh, to. So, uh, I mean, today if you are playing with your own drone, you need to be in line of sight and you need to control them. But if you want, like to have some delivery of drones in the city, you would like to connect them, um, and you can also view it from the other viewpoint that you would like to use satellites or some kind of uh, uh, balloons that would provide you with connectivity from above. Mm. So, so again, let's, I mean, or let's, let's break this down. So aerial networks, it sounds to me like it means two different things. On one hand, to, to use like base stations that would be deployed on satellites or on uh, flying objects or somewhere uh, well up in the sky. And it also sounded like it is about creating a network between or among flying objects themselves. Yes. Is that a, yes. So they are certainly two different aspects. Uh, and I think that when it comes to supporting uh, flying things, usually you put your base station, you tilt them down towards the Earth where the users are supposed to be, and you need to think about other ways of deploying them potentially in order to provide good coverage over the sky. Mm. So actually designing base stations that radiate power upwards into the sky and it is done into the cell. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but I mean, it does sound to me like the technological challenges are quite different in between of number one, making base stations that fly around or are deployed on satellites and number two, uh, ensuring coverage of a 3D space to enable connectivity to airplanes and uh, maybe drones and, and similar. Um, so this could be, some, I mean, this is could be partly my ignorance, obviously, but it sounds like something that I did not hear so much about when 5G was discussed. And perhaps it is something uniquely uh, novel uh, and that might come in 6G. Is that a correct understanding or coherent, consistent with your understanding, Emil? Yes, I think there were a willingness from the satellite business to be involved in 5G, but it really didn't really happen. I think what they are looking for now is that you make sure that the 6G standard can also be utilized for connectivity with satellites, so that you're mm. using the same kind of, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, protocols, uh, air interfaces, and so on. Because as we are moving towards millimeter wave or, or upwards uh, above uh, six, seven gigahertz, we are approaching the frequencies that are usually used by satellites. So then it's natural that if you would be using the same kind of um, interfaces, the mobile phone could directly connect to these networks. The only problem is, of course, the path loss because you're, they are far away, though in line of sight. <laughs> yeah. Hmm. Wow. Um, all right. Um, what else is there to say about 6G or what does the white paper have to say? So, so one question obviously is spectrum. Huh? What, what, what bands? So will there be like new bands that would be um, you, you used and exploited for 6G? Is that where, where's the vision there? 
Yeah, typically you want to have new spectrum so that you can deploy a new 60 network in that spectrum and not having to immediately tear down the old networks that you're having. And this is one of the, the complicated things because there's of course limited spectrum and you are competing with other technologies as well. Uh, so the white paper is talking about uh, four different kinds of spectrum here. Uh, the midband, which is sort of from maybe two gigahertz up to just before millimeter wave, so up to say 24 gigahertz. So that's a lot of uh, spectrum. They are splitting it up into two halves. The lower midband, which is up to seven, which is what we are essentially using now in 5G as well. And then the upper part, which is in between that and millimeter wave. Mm. Okay, so let's recap this. So lower midband is from like zero up to seven. Yeah. Upper midband is from like seven up to where does millimeter wave actually start? Like thirty or something? No, twenty-eight maybe. Yeah. So it, it, it should be thirty if you want to sort of say ah this is ten millimeters, but then it usually starts yeah. at twenty-four because they happen to be spectrum yeah. at a few uh, markets uh, at that frequency. Yeah. Okay. Got it. So twenty-four. I think I erroneously said twenty-eight, but twenty-four really. So from seven to twenty-four is the upper midband. And then from 24 and upwards is... Yeah, up towards 92 or 100 gigahertz, we call it millimeter wave. And then wave. up to 100, we hit the sub terahertz. Exactly. Yes, range. Uh, so these are, are the different ranges then. And then if you want to build 6G in a band, you want this same band to be used not necessarily over the entire world, but at least over big regions of the world. So, so that is when the ITU, the International Telecom Union, comes into place uh, because they are helping out with harmonizing this around the world. Mm -hmm. So the ITU. Yes, and the thing that we call cellular, they call this IMT, International Mobile Telecommunications. IMT, International Mobile Telecommunications. So, so the, I think we are um, now uh, walking over like land where I feel I have rather little knowledge. And maybe we should do an episode in itself on how regulation and, and spectrum allocation works. Um, but there is the IMU that ultimately makes decisions in some sort of consensus among different countries in the world, is it like that? And every four years they have a big uh, congress, World Radio Communication Congresses, when they are discussing, should we make any changes? Should we allocate certain spectrum band to this IMT, meaning to 5G, 6G or whatever? Uh, and there is one such uh, conference now in, I think, December, but at least this year. And then oh, there will be another one in 2027. And uh, there isn't that much proposals for 2023 regarding what to use. There are some proposals to uh, start allocating something in the upper midband towards 60. Mm. Uh, but otherwise, it's in four years time where the really tough decisions will have to be made to, to allocate something new. Uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, it sounds a bit like a tough call, right? Given that millimeter wave deployment, as we discussed at the beginning, didn't really succeed so well, then to come and ask for even more spectrum, especially around those giga around those um, frequencies, it's one thing to ask maybe for like more low band or sub 10 or 7, whatever, yeah. 
um, but to ask for like well well 30 gigahertz millimeter wave didn't work out so well so now we want more at 28 that sounds like a, a, a tough call or a tough request to come with so it'll be quite interesting to see how all this plays out Yes, I think this issue will certainly be there uh, because uh, it's not like there is a lot of spectrum lying around that no one is using. So uh, if we are now zooming in at this upper midband because the millimeter wave was had two difficult propagation conditions, we want to find something between seven and, and millimeter wave. Mm-hmm. Then satellites are using a lot of those things already, and uh, then it will be a lot of tough discussions there should yeah, we really get more <laughs> <laughs> must be nightmarishly hard to get countries from all over the world to agree on which bands because there might be vested interests and uh, domestic interests that aren't compatible with uh, among countries so then of course i mean moving even higher up this is sub 10 uh, or sub terahertz uh, band starting at about 100 gigahertz, right? And I mean, up there, Spectrum is basically just for free. Um, there's just so much of it that we don't need to care really so much, maybe, about spectral efficiency and out-of-band emissions and uh, all of like the, the classical constraints that we had in, in the IMT bands. Right. Uh, is there a lot of talking about... Um, where to go there with and how to use the terahertz frequencies. So I think in order to use the sub-terahertz frequencies, uh, we, since there are already some systems using some of those frequencies, there needs to be a, a sort of decision at one of these world radio congresses in order to decide on should we look into uh, coexistence between uh, these existing uh, use cases and what you're proposing for cellular uh, and to, to set what kind of out-of-band emissions and other things that you are allowed to have or transmit powers and uh, there is no proposal about that this year uh, hmm. so I think that uh, we need to see there in the future will there be new proposals around that before subterrage actually have a chance of, of becoming reality yeah uh, before it actually has a chance yes to become relevant of course i mean again at sub terahertz bandwidth is unlimited right but the physics is more difficult because of small antenna areas and and, and even high, high mobility even worse than at the millimeter um, band so that'll be highly interesting i think to see how this eventually plays out yeah so uh, what Sweden and a few other countries have proposed for this year is to look into free 7 and 10 gigahertz bands. There are some specific frequencies there that they want us to look into. Should Can we allocate this for 6G? Uh, and if any of those things are approved, well, then they, that will be analyzed, I guess, during the next four years until the next Congress. So they can decide on then if something will be allocated for 6G. Right, so it'll be quite exciting to to follow and see what uh, is eventually decided uh, at this Congress. Mm. Wow. All right, so I think our discussion here today has mostly been uh, around the white paper, but also a little bit intermingled with like your and maybe mine um, personal understanding <laughs> of matters. So I guess a natural question here is how much of consensus is there 
out there on like I mean because now we, we talked about one specific white paper for one specific company namely this operator right SK Telecom how much of consensus is there because there's a bunch of other white papers that have been written about 6G um, so how much consensus is there about all these matters with 6G with um, the possible co- points of controversy and contention like virtualization and open run that we t- t- touched upon and about the importance of uh, different spectral bands and about what applications they will drive the development. And there are a few things that we didn't touch at all, I think, here. One is uh, reflecting intelligent surfaces. How important will they be in the 6G deployments? Mm. And we didn't talk, I think, at all about energy neutral and backscattering communications. And uh, we didn't talk about sensing, I think, integrated sensing and communications, which is another thing that uh, a lot of folks in academia uh, work on. And we didn't talk about semantic communications, which is another direction that some folks in academia are, are, are investigating. So, but but overall, do you have a good feeling for like, how much does this white paper does it differ? I mean, it opines on a number of issues, but how much does it differ from what the opinion of the um, if there is anything like a consensus, but from what others in in the field think? So, I the other white papers I looked at are providing somewhat similar kind of opinions about things but yeah you mentioned some of these other technologies uh, or aspects uh, and i think some of those are are discussed at other places and will become important Uh, but uh, the way that this really works is that this itu organization they have a radio section that is putting out requirements for something being called 6g and uh, then you need to let uh, companies, uh, in this case 3DPP, uh, where would be the organization where companies are agreeing upon how to build 6G in order to reach those requirements. And the requirements aren't there yet. Uh, so, no. so, so that is also <laughs> up in there. But there were in first meeting in June this year in the ITU uh, where they were discussing uh, what would be the requirements and they haven't put any numbers or anything like that but they will eventually uh, put out a report called IMT 2030 uh, which is sort of means what requirements uh, do you need for technology to be called 60. Uh, and there they have at least started to talk about use cases and what kind of metrics they will consider. Hmm. Uh, so I can uh, mention a little bit about that. So when it comes to, to metrics, it's of course better data rates, better spectrum efficiency, better or shorter latency, higher reliability. So the things that we already have, and there they will be tuning. I would numbers. even say the things that we've been talking about for decades. Yeah, right? yeah, exactly. It's always been there, like in wireless connectivity. Hmm. Uh, but they do have a few new capabilities that they are specifically labeling like that, and that is uh, about coverage about sensing capabilities, about AI capabilities, so the thing we talked about there, sustainability, interoperability, which I guess is the open round kind of thing, the, the openness there, and positioning. So there will be some particular requirements related to all of those things. Mm. Uh, now, when it comes to use cases, uh, we have those three that I was mentioning, mobile broadband, massive 
uh, machine type communication and ultra reliable low latency and uh, those things will remain they will rename them to something new mm. immersive <laughs> communication massive <laughs> communication hyper reliable low latency communication uh, that seems to be their names uh, but it's essentially the same kind of use cases you just crank up the numbers a bit uh, but also there they have a few different uh, new use cases that they are mentioned so three of them uh, so you get six 66. Um, so it's integrated sensing and communication, which I personally also think is an, a nice topic. Uh, ubiquitous connectivity, uh, which I'm not entirely sure how they are defining, but maybe this is also sort of related yeah, to Yeah, I think coverage. it's just another, another name for coverage is what it sounds yeah. to me like. And then finally, integrated AI and communication, which I, I guess is also something related to both AI within the network, but possibly also to support uh, some kind of AI going over the network. Mm. Mm. But that's a whole different thing, right? I mean, it's one thing to use AI algorithms uh, within the network um, to well solve algorithmic problems which i would not consider a goal in itself that is just an, like an enabler just like any other piece of signal processing or optimization algorithms that go in there but using the network to support ai algorithms that's something else yeah um like collecting uh, data from edge devices to that collaboratively collaboratively trains a machine learning model for example in the cloud and that is something that seems a little bit more novel to me and that was not discussed so much i think for 5g um so there there do seem to be uh there does seem to be uh a few new things here which i guess is good news for us working in in the business of let's say wireless comms and the related Exactly. And I think when it comes to uh, enabling AI over the network, we had a previous episode where we talked about that as well with Carlo Fischione, who was visiting us. In fact, we did. Yes. Wow. Yes, that's it. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So thank you so much, Emil. It was a great discussion. Um, I learned a lot of new things um, and uh, hope to continue discussing with you again new topics yes in a next episode and uh, of course uh, we are so happy that people are, are listening to the podcast and that is the reason also that we are continuing doing that in addition to just having a nice conversation we also record it for you absolutely so don't forget to log into youtube and uh, hit the like and subscribe button yes 